You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, powered by Interstate Batteries. From your truck to your trail camera, Interstate Batteries has you covered. Visit your local Interstate Battery store today or online at interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. Welcome to the DIY Sportsman Podcast, Episode 5 on the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network with your hosts, Garrett Prawl and Boudreaux Boswell. Today we tackle what can be a controversial topic, which is scent control. We go over each of our individual philosophies, what we personally use, what we would use if cost wasn't an issue, and our opinions on just simply throwing out scent control entirely and hunting the wind. I definitely learned a thing about the physiology of a deer's nose from Boswell's biology background, and his experience using tracking dogs, and we hope that in general, you guys can learn something valuable to strengthen your own philosophy on scent control. All right, so I guess we can kick this thing off. Do you have really a philosophy for scent control? And on top of that philosophy, what do you typically do on a standard hunt? Yeah, so my philosophy is uh, kind of... A little bit of everything hunt the wind mainly obviously uh for me and then i've went more towards ozone uh, i typically kind of i haven't spent the money on scent blockers or anything like that but from my standpoint the ozone basically breaking down the molecules on the clothes if the clothes are you know contaminated with some type of scent and then just hunt the wind and those are my primary philosophies for it now with ozone do you do that in the tree or do you do that before you go out in the woods in like a duffel bag or a closet yeah, typically in a duffel bag or in a closet. I tried a little bit of it in the wind, um, but I think the ozone generator that I had or that I've been using is just not big enough. Um, it's not a full-size, um, not made by ozone or a full-size generator of that matter. Okay. Yeah, and we'll get into that a little bit too when we have our ozone-specific podcast. But there's some other things that go into ozone that you don't necessarily hear from the manufacturers that will make what you think is happening with the ozone be a lot different than what actually happens in a controlled scientific environment. I think most forms of scent control help rather than hurt. Uh, some help more than others. However, with each you know particular thing that you can do, there's also a level of cost, you know, physical cost, how much it comes out of your wallet, and also just an inconvenience factor. So for me, knowing that it can help, but that there's some drawbacks typically, I'll usually do Anything that is not going to be, you know, too overly expensive or too overly inconvenient. That's just kind of my philosophy. So I end up usually just sticking with the basics of hunt the wind. And I might use like a cover scent on my boots and like a scent killer spray on the rest of my body. Ozone in the tree is too much of an inconvenience, too expensive. The scent lock suit, you know, like for me, that's too much of a cost thing. Um, I'd rather buy clothes for the performance that they provide rather than the scent control yeah absolutely and that's for the scent blocker or scent lock that that's my philosophy on it is yeah i'm sure it helps but you've got to go to such extent that i don't know that the trade-off is necessarily there um, and especially like you said you have to buy their specific clothes and they may not offer a garment that you're looking for whether it be a midwear a mid-layer or a, a heavy weight layer right i've heard too that they don't breathe as well you're wearing them in on like a long hike, but I haven't actually confirmed that myself. Which would make sense uh, to a degree, you know, kind of how the system works. 
Yeah. And I think one of the challenges with scent control in general is that it's not just a physical science, you know, like something visual we can understand. We can understand camouflage because we can see not, you know, a whole lot different than what a deer can see. Obviously they see a little bit different resolution. They see different colors and whatnot, but we can look at a piece of camouflage and say, yeah, that matches my environment or it doesn't. Whereas if you get into like UV light, now we can't understand that anymore because we can't see that. But scientists tell us that UV is a thing that deer can see. So we kind of have to take their word for it. And scent, I think, is similar. Deer can smell so much better than we can that a lot of times we have to take the word of science for it. But the challenge is you have the science that says essentially that, you know, if your odor molecules get into a deer's nose, they're going to smell it, assuming the concentration is high enough to pass a certain threshold. If that threshold is met, then they're going to smell you. But the, uh, the uh, next thing that comes into play is the behavioral science of it where the deer might not react even if it does smell you. And I think there's a lot of times where people will use scent control or not use scent control and they'll have a particular effect. Either the deer does or does not smell them when they think that the deer should smell them if they're downwind and they'll attribute to uh, either their scent control or lack thereof of working or not working. I completely agree. I think that's why there's such a a, wa- a large variety of scent control procedures or things that people do is, you know, we obviously can't see if that deer can smell us because we can't see our scent stream. Um, so like you said, they may attribute them wearing scent blocker or ozone to not being able to be smelled when in all reality, their scent is really not even blowing to where that deer is standing. And then even if the deer does smell you, it's what their reaction is. I think a lot of times, you know, it's associating the scent of human beings with danger. So there's some places where, you know, an instance that I had, um, I know a guy back in Missouri who his philosophy is he will walk his farm twice a day, every day. And this guy kills big deer, 160s plus every year. And his philosophy is if that deer smells me every day of the year, that deer does not know that I'm a threat to it because it smells me every day and it has no association of danger up until the day that I shoot that deer. So it's that association between the smell of humans and danger that I think really plays a big part in this. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I'm not sure whether or not deer are born innately with a, you know, a correlation between human scent and danger. But I do know that there's been times where, you know, say I've been in a metro hunt where deer have for sure, they must have smelled me and didn't react. You know, it might've been a time when I was hunting a couple hundred yards behind a cul-de-sac. So you wouldn't expect them to react negatively to human scent. I have a friend that's, you know, like yours, where he'll go out and check trail cameras twice a week, religiously out in the summer, gets a scent everywhere. And the deer just learn to accept that he's not in danger. Um, and then there's obviously other times where you get the exact opposite effect, say on public land. Yeah, exactly. And that Metro hunt that you brought up to me, that's where I get a lot of my association from is, you know, you have these urban deer that basically never, never associate human scent with danger. So they smell people all the time and they may smell you in the woods, but they're not going to associate you with danger compared to you go to a public land in, you know, say Northern Michigan or somewhere where deer get pressured a lot when they smell human scent. Now they have that association. So I think, you know, the does that have the fawns will relate that association to the fawns. So if the doe smells a human and she, you know, fears for danger, she's going to run. And that fawn is going to think, learn that same thing, basically. That mom associated that smell that I smelled with danger, so we ran. And I think the more you can kind of urbanize 
um, an area to where you they deer smell that human scent all the time, the less of danger you're going to get associated in that herd. That definitely makes a lot of sense, that explanation. And now there are places where I hunt too where it might be 10, 20, 30,000 acres and there's dozens, if not a hundred or more hunters that go out, go through that, those woods in a matter of a year. And there's just no way that you can, on your own, make that association become a reality. And so you have to assume the worst, assume that they're going to negatively respond to your scent. Yeah, exactly. So then it becomes, you know, what, if you're going to assume that everything is going to react negatively to your scent, what method do you look at as being the most efficient? Say you were, you know, is that going to be a scent blocker? Is that going to be sprays, ozone, or just hunt the wind? What do you see as the plus and minuses of each one? Well, let's start with the easiest one, which is hunt the wind. I think that for the most part, we can all agree that if you hunt the wind and the wind does what it's supposed to, the deer never has a chance to smell you and the behavioral aspect doesn't even apply. I think the negative that sometimes can come with hunting the wind is you might think you have a good wind until you get into a spot where you're actually going to hunt and you find out that the wind swirls or it might be going opposite the direction of you know the prevailing wind that day for 10% of the time. Or you might find that uh, you actually have a, a hidden thermal, like say a water thermal, you're hunting close to like a, a river or a pond or something and that scent gets drawn in the last few minutes of daylight and you weren't expecting that. There's some times when you can get blindsided by the wind in that regard. And I think the other time when hunting the wind can help you is that, you know, one of the things I've learned from Dan Enfault is that a lot of the times big bucks will, you know, bed and use the wind to their advantage, not yours. So if you have a favorable wind, it might not be a favorable wind for that deer that you're trying to hunt and he might not even show. Right. My, my biggest thing with the wind is you're, you can't see it. So we don't know exactly what's going on. So like you said, you may have these hidden thermals, um, you know, like a river or just in a certain area where, you know, you're hunting next to a field. Wind is created by basically the, the heating of the earth's surface is what creates wind. So then you have thermals that are, do things similar. So an area that's heated up by the sun is going to create a thermal that rises. Um, whereas an area in the shade, that air may be dropping. So because we can't see it, you know, I think most people rely just more on, oh, it's a northeast wind. So as long as I set up for that, it's fine. When in all reality, you can get in there and that wind could be doing so many different things because we can't see it. Yeah, you can use the milkweed pods and let them float in the air, but you can probably do that, you know, in one spot and move 10 feet over and it's going to do something completely different. So I think wind to me is the biggest wild card in the whole thing because there's so many variables that affect it, like water, um, sunshine, uh, tree cover, canopy cover, uh, terrain. There's so many variables to it that it's so hard to predict to be accurate. Right. I agree for sure. I remember hearing on a podcast that I think it was Andre DeQuisto had a tree stand that was set abnormally high in a tree. And he had it set that way because he found that if he had his tree stand set at a normal height, the milkweed would carry right toward the deer trail. But if he was 10 feet up higher, it would carry over the top on a standard wind. And I think, you know, you're, what you're saying makes a lot of sense is that we can use milkweed to learn, but it might be changing often enough and subtle enough that if you're not dropping a, a milkweed at that, you know, instantaneous moment, you might not know exactly what the wind is doing. You don't have a constant 
uh, stream of milkweed always flowing from you at the same time. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, you could be hunting, you know, theoretically 10 or 15 yards inside from a field edge. The field edge is in the sunshine. Your scent could blow to that field, but as soon as it hits the field, it may go up 20 feet and then blow across the field more. Mm -hmm. So any deer that walks down that field edge is really not going to smell you. Um, but that's something that we can't see. So it's a, it's a wild guess. It may go to that field edge and drop straight to the ground. Uh, so there's so many variables there that it's just such a wild card to me. I mean, I try to hunt it. I try to hunt with the general direction. And like you said, get there, test it with the milkweed pods, see where it's going and then say, okay, you know, this is going to work for this area. And then going back to the question you asked earlier, assuming that following the wind doesn't work assuming you just it changes or you didn't do a good enough job checking and now you have a situation where your scent more than likely could be blowing to where you expect the deer to come out and so what would be the most effective thing in that scenario well i think probably the most effective thing would be a combination approach you know you got i would say if you're in the tree you have ozone blowing such as like an ozonics i think you have a full suit of activated carbon I think Scentlock might be the only one who has that technology. I'm not 100% sure. For sure, covering your mouth too, basically covering almost all your exposed skin, probably using scent killer sprays on top of that. Cover scent on the boots probably wouldn't hurt. Um, and obviously that's a ton of inconvenience and cost to go that entire route, but it's probably the most effective in, in terms of trying to minimize your scent to the point where if the deer does smell you, it either is below the threshold where it can perceive the smell or it's low enough that they might just kind of think, oh, it must not be an immediate threat. It seems like a pretty weak scent. Exactly. And if you were to go that route, I mean, like you said, you're going to spend a lot of money to get your ozone set up, your full head-to-toe uh, activated carbon suit. But obviously, it's the best of all worlds because you're using all the different options to try to protect your scent stream. Right. And let's say, for example, if I had a piece of private land and I knew that there was a Boone and Crockett buck betting on a certain spot and he had just every wind advantage that you could get in that betting spot. And the only way that I could hunt him would be to hunt in a spot where he's going to catch my wind. I would probably do that. Um, you know, it'd be worth the cost, I think in that, that case, but it's hard to just implement something like that on a, you know, a yearly basis for all the different hunts that you could go on. Yeah, absolutely. And to me, the biggest thing is, you know, finding which one you have the most confidence in and going with that. Some people are going to be more confident with just hunting the wind. Um, and like you said, it's all in their perception. So if they harvest deer just by hunting the wind, they're going to tend to lean more that way. If they use a lot of ozone, ozonics, then they're going to lean more that way. So find whichever one makes you the most confident in your hunting style and go with it because it's going to make you a more confident hunter all around. Yeah, absolutely. Confidence is king. Do you worry about boot scent for your access routes? Um, no, not really. I mean, I do a little bit. Typically, I just wear rubber boots. Um, you know, a lot of people use the spray to spray down your rubber boots, like the the scent killer, you know, that's proven 99% effective or whatever. To me, that stuff is just a, it's a joke because you think about spraying that if you could put like some type of ultraviolet indicator in it and then spray yourself to what you think you're scent free and then you were to shine an ultraviolet light on you, I think it would be a joke on how little you actually covered your body in scent killer basically. So I've never really used anything like that. Um, I might use something like uh, the Evercom 
I might rub a little bit that on the side of my boots as before I walk in, especially if I know I'm going to have to cross a trail that a deer might come down. Is that a cover scent? Yeah, it's, um, they make it like a deodorant stick and it's supposed to be deer dander basically. Hmm. Okay. So I have used the sprays. I don't use them on the boots too much, but I use them on the rest of my body just to kind of, it, my philosophy is it probably doesn't help a ton. Like you said, it's not going to give me a hundred percent coverage. I accept that, but it might help. And it might be a thing where you know, you might knock your set down 10 or 20% and that might be just enough where the deer doesn't have an adverse reaction to your scent. And it's cheap enough that it's not that big of an inconvenience and it's not that big of a cost for me to go and buy a big tub of it at the beginning of the season for $8 on, you know, a, you know, before hunting clearance. My other question with it is, you know, especially using like a, like how you wear the Kuyu camo and it's DWR treated, so it's water resistant. So mm-hmm. how well does that work on something that's you know, water resistant. So theoretically you spray it on there, it's going to beat up. You take a step, it's going to fall off. Yeah. So I'd assume, that's it's, kinda... I'd assume it's probably water soluble. Have you ever tried spraying yourself with it to see what happens? Yeah. It beads up on my pants and literally I can pop my pants and it comes right back off. And I'm just like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Uh, I would assume it probably doesn't help you that much. But then yeah. Again, so I mean, that's, sure. Yeah, I don't know either, and I don't know. I've never read anything on it or looked at any kind of study on that to see because a lot of people have some type of water-resistant clothing that they're spraying that on. So I think, you know, especially with something like that, you might be just spinning your wheels. But like I said, if it makes you feel like you're a more confident hunter, go for it. I think, if I remember right, some of the directions say to spray it and let it dry. So I think in that case, it probably wouldn't be as effective if it was able to roll off before it dried and was able to work its magic. But I do use cover scent on my boots. I think it's probably more effective than just using a scent killer spray, in particular because I don't even use rubber boots that much anymore. I've pretty much, for early season, I just use regular hiking boots. They're just so much more comfortable. I don't get any blisters at all. And for me, the comfort outweighs the potential effect of the scent. And then like the boots that I'm using right now, as it's starting to get colder, we had 28 degrees today. And I've started using uh, the Cabela's lockdown boot, which is just like a, it's like a combination of a hiking boot with a gaiter that just slides up your, up your uh, shin. And the base of that boot is rubber, but the rest of it is not. So for sure, there's definitely the potential that a deer could smell my scent trail as I'm walking through the woods. And I don't know for sure whether or not that, or how much that cover scent helps. The stuff that I've used uh, wasn't ever calm. It was the uh, vanilla smelling stuff. Oh, what's it called? Um, nose jammer. That's the stuff oh, I okay. tried. And if you smell it, it's very strong vanilla odor. And I don't, like I said, I don't know how much it helps, but I can say that last weekend when I was out and I think I texted you that I saw a few deer, I actually had done some in-season scouting where I just walked a transition line for probably half a mile and I was getting ready to go back to the truck because I hadn't really seen what I wanted to see. And at the last second, I saw a scrape that had just opened up. So I had decided to hunt over it. And I had that uh, that stuff on my boots. And the three, all three deer that I saw walked directly over the path that I had walked on and didn't really react to it. So I don't know if that was something they would have done anyway if I wouldn't have used that uh, cover scent or if it actually did make a difference or not. But it definitely doesn't seem to hurt. So from a confidence standpoint, it's probably something I'll continue to use. 
So do you do you run anything on your boots other than that? I mean, what's your care when you're not hunting? Do you store them in a scent tight container? Do you use ozone on them? No, pretty much. I just leave them sit in my house. I put them on a boot dryer if they get wet and soggy on the inside. But that's about it. So you don't you don't think they're acting as like a scent wick that's absorbing smells from your house into your boots because they're not a rubber boot? Well, they very well may be. But if I'm using the cover scent, then there's the potential that the scent that's emitted from the cover scent outweighs, in a sense, the scent, you know, from your house. And that's what's, you know, the signal that's getting the priority in the deer's brain. You know, it's like if you uh, put Icy Hot on a, on a sore knee or something, the pain signals are still getting sent to your brain. It's just that this, the signals from the Icy Hot are outweighing the pain signal, so it doesn't feel as painful anymore. And I think cover scent is kind of the same, uh, the same strategy. See, I, I, I understand that point of it, but to me, it, it the way deer smell um, are completely different from the way we smell. They have, I, if I remember right, they have more olfactory bulbs than uh, dogs. So think about everybody, you know, these drug dogs. People are trying to f- find ways to mask the odor of drugs from dogs, but dogs can still sniff them out. And deer are pretty much the same way. We smell it as an extremely strong, overwhelming um, aroma. Whereas deer can actually break that apart and smell all different things within that. So that to me, the science behind it says those deer are still smelling your boots and they're also smelling the vanilla. So it's but like the vanillas. It's not overwhelming their olfactory bulbs like it is ours. So you're saying they have, a, and you probably understand the, the deer anatomy better than I probably do, but you're essentially saying that they have a more complex olfactory system, whereas, like, say, for example, you can take a picture and draw it down in 2D, and that's the way we smell, and then you imagine, like, a 3D shape, and that's the way deer smell? Yeah, so the best way to kind of explain this is we, using a food reference, for example, Deer smell the recipe to the potato soup that we smell. So all we smell is potato soup, but the deer smell the recipe list that makes up that potato soup. Hmm. So while we just smell one scent, they can smell the potatoes, the broth, the pepper, the salt. They can smell all of that that makes up that potato soup. And this is coming from your background as in uh, wildlife biology? Yeah, and it's it's the same, you know, a lot of people have this dog argument that I know there's been some tests done with scent lock or whatever where the dog can, you know, hunt people down and scent lock, full scent lock and everything like that. You know, a dog does the same thing. They can break down what the smell that they're smelling is. And you can, you know, you can fill a car full of cologne and stick a little bit of marijuana or something in there, some type of drug. And that dog is going to be able to go through there and sift out all those smells until he finds the one that he's looking for, which is the drug paraphernalia. Hmm. Yeah, that does make a lot of sense. You're starting to make my cover scent argument sound weaker. <laughs> <laughs> it should, I mean, and that's I. I mean, I'm. I still use that Evercom, but to me, it's more of a. It's a deer dander, so it's kind of a. The premises behind it was, I guess, a guy worked at a deer farm, um, so these the deer put off a odor, a kind of a calming odor um, from their dander. And he noticed that when he would go hunting after that, he never had deer wind him. So that was his philosophy. So even though that deer smells me, it may smell that calming scent from another deer basically 
and basically associate my scent with the calming scent so that it's not as spooked, hmm. if that makes any sense. Yeah, that does, that does make sense. So it can, it can smell your scent and it might, your scent in combination with the deer scent will make it more likely that the deer doesn't perceive your scent as a threat. Exactly. Whereas if it smells your scent with a vanilla scent, it can very well associate that vanilla scent with danger if it associates you with danger. It's to me, it's just something interesting. Like I said, I'm, if I remember right, deer have more olfactory bulbs than dogs. And a lot of people are going to say, well, dogs are trained to hunt out, you know, drug paraphernalia. Well, deer are trained to stay alive. So if they can associate anything with danger, they're going to associate it with danger. So along the dog argument, I think, so the ones that I've seen, there's been basically, I think a field and stream or some other magazine did a, a test where they had a guy spray down his boots and scent killer and go walk through a field and the dog was able to track him. And there was another one where there was guys hiding in big containers and the dogs had to run around all these, this big maze of containers and try and find the one that had the guy. And if I remember right from the, the boot scent from the, like when the guy that took the, uh, took the scent killer and sprayed his boots when walking through a field, the dog had no problem finding him, which is probably the same, you know, type of argument where, yeah, you put one particular person walking down a sidewalk with hundreds of other people walking along that same sidewalk, a dog might be able to pick out that individual scent and just track that one person. And a deer could probably do the same thing. My counter argument to that would be, yeah, there's, you know, a very good chance that the deer probably can smell you, but just like the dog, it's probably smelling you in a very low sensitivity. So the dog is trained to follow that low sensitivity, that low concentration, whereas the deer on the other hand, might smell that low concentration and think, oh, it must not be that big of an immediate threat. Yeah, same, it, same thing with the boxes. I think that, uh, I think the ozone, the guy that used ozone was the guy that where the dog took him like almost a minute, like several times longer to find than any other scent control method. And that, I thought that was impressive. Some guys say, oh, the ozone obviously didn't work because the dog was able to find him. Whereas I look at that and I say, well, if the dog took that long to find him, that means his scent must have been in a very low concentration. And if a scent was in a low concentration in an actual wood scenario, the deer is more likely to associate that low concentration with no immediate threat of danger. Exactly. And that's, that's the way I look. That's kind of why I lead more towards ozone is kind of that same study. I know this, I'm familiar with the study that you're talking about, you know, because that dog was actively searching out that person. So he was trying to follow that scent trail whereas a deer we're talking about that deer maybe crossing your scent trail so we're talking 10 or 12 feet maybe where if that deer crosses your scent in an ozone stream like you said it's going to be dramatically less so it's not going to associate that with danger and one thing to, to think about is you know basically the amount of time that your scent trail was there so if you walk to your stand climb up in your stand Basically, your scent is declining every minute that you're in the stand on that trail that you're on. So it could be, what is it? Is it two hours before your scent's completely gone off of that trail that a deer can completely walk across it and not smell you? Or is it 30 minutes or is it two days? That's something that we don't know because we can't see that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So if you can use anything that might help dissipate, that's the word I'm looking for, dissipate your scent quicker like ozone 
then that's going to dramatically help on not getting busted. Yeah. And for ozone, I actually do have an ozone generator that I put together from a DIY kit on eBay. It costs like 20 bucks, but it's a lot more, a lot higher ozone output than say like an Ozonics or something like that. But the, uh, the challenge with ozone in the woods is that there's so many factors for the inputs you can't control. You can't control the humidity. You can't control the amount, the percentage of oxygen that's in the atmosphere, which are all things that are controlled when ozone is used in a professional environment. So I usually, when I do use ozone, I'll just use that little generator that has a hose that's meant to be used in like a fish tank or some other kind of consumer application. And I'll just take out my duffel bag and run it for 20 minutes, turn it off, and then you know, peek open that duffel bag and you can definitely get the strong scent of ozone, but then I'll just zip it back up and I can just open it again once I get to the woods. Yeah, exactly. That's, you know, there's, to me, it's much like the wind. If you use it in the field, there's a lot of variables that can affect the performance of it. Um, so as with the wind, there's a lot of variables that can affect the way the wind blows and if it's blowing up down or anything like that the same thing goes with ozone you know like you said the humidity um, temperature amount of oxygen in the air all those things can affect how that ozone generator is going to work for you in mm -hmm. the woods compared yep. to in a controlled environment like your house speaking of temperature do you seem to find that deer wind you less when it's cold out uh yeah i mean obviously i typically put off less scent um but for the most part, it seems like I get winded less later in the year. Now, whether they're more used to me being in the woods that time of year, I, it's hard to say. There's an article online that might be interesting for you to look up and read. It's called, uh, does food smell, why does food smell more when it's warm? It kind of asks the scientific question of, you know, if, if, the thermal, if the thermal energy of warmer temperatures is able to make scents more susceptible for noses to be able to pick up. Yeah. And the same thing with that, a lot of people, um, rain, for example, a lot of people think it's good to go in when there's rain and your scent's going to be less. Your scent actually sticks around more when there's a little bit of moisture on the ground. So it's better to go in an extremely dry climate where there's not a whole lot of moisture and your scent is actually going to stick around less than if there's a little bit of rain or dew on the ground, your scent is going to stick there a lot longer. So that's a common misconception for a lot of hunters is they think that rain gets rid of their scent when in all reality it does the opposite. It actually helps hold your scent in the area longer. What if it's a larger rainstorm or something like where you go in, you go in the woods, you do a scouting trip, and then the next day it downpours? Yeah, that's going to be better. Um, but like the light drizzly rains that a lot of people like to hunt in, that's typically the worst for your scent. Um, but like you said, if you're going to scout somewhere and there's going to be a torrential downpour, you know, like probably a half inch of rain overnight or more, then you're probably going to be fine because that's going to wash away a lot of your scent. Because like I know with tracking with my dog, uh, a little bit of moisture on the ground will help him tremendously when he tracks because it helps hold that scent to the ground better. Hmm. Interesting. Have you ever used your dog to track deer when it was significantly warm or significantly cold? And was there a difference that you could tell temperature wise? Uh, yeah. I mean, temperature wise, um, he seems to be able in the cold, he doesn't stick as close to the trail 
it seems like he can vary off of the trail a little bit and still stick with it. So I don't know if the scent, it's given like a little bit broader of a scent stream for him. Um, whereas in the drier climates, he's got a, he's like almost going exactly down the track the deer went to stay on the trail. If he deviates from it just, you know, two or three feet, it seems like he loses it and he'll have to circle back till he cuts it again. Hmm. Interesting. So from your experience, dry is, is usually the best for ensuring that your scent doesn't stick around. Yeah, from what I've, that's probably the number one variable. Yeah. From what I've seen, um, you know, just a dry climate, the, it doesn't, the scent doesn't seem to stick as much as when it's uh, got a little bit of moisture that the scent molecules can stick to. Do you use any, um, any deer scents for lures? Uh, tip. No, I can't say that I ever have. Um, the only ones that kind of interested me are like the, uh, preorbital glands. Uh, there was, I think the Wenzels maybe did it, uh, basically where they took a rope and soaked it in like some preorbital gland and just hung it from a tree. Some of that stuff that they did there was, was pretty interesting that I would consider doing, but I never got around to it. Yeah. I gotta say there's been plenty of times where I broken down during the rut and went to the store and bought some kind of, of urine scent and put it on a drag or, or hung up a scent wick. Uh, and I can't say that in my uh, many years of hunting that I've ever actually for sure seen it work. So I've pretty much completely gone away from it. But the thing that, uh, I guess reminded me of that was when we were talking about moisture and that there's, there's different solutions where those scents can be housed. You can either have like a water soluble source for the scent. You can have a, an oil based or like a wax based and some of those will supposedly last longer than others. Yeah. And I'm sure there's some research out there on which one of those works better um, than others. Obviously you would think oil, oil kind of sticks around a little bit more um, than water. Water would probably evaporate off a little quicker. Wax, a more of a paste, you know, may not dissipate as quickly, but it may not also may not produce as much scent. Right. That's kind of my understanding of it as well. Um, the longer it's going to last in the woods, the longer it's going to take, especially when it's colder. Cause when it's cold, you're not have you don't have as much thermal energy to get those scent molecules to actually break free from the surface and get windborne. Uh, whereas if it's warmer, that happens much more readily. There's actually a, a product called Windscent, And the idea behind that is that it actually uses like a, uh, a little battery and a circuit kind of similar to like an e-cigarette. And it'll actually take like a dough and heat scent and heat it up. So if it's like 10 degrees out, you can actually get that. You can actually see like a little mist of that scent that gets vaporized. Yeah, I remember back, I guess it was like my first year in college or so, I had a buddy who thought he came up with a million dollar idea of taking one of those candle warmers. So instead of like burning the candle, you sit basically on the small little hot plate and it heats up and puts out the aroma. He was thinking of doing the same thing for deer. And then I think it was like two years later, either Buck Bomb or somebody like that came up with the same kind of thing that it was basically a scent warmer that you put your scent in and it was run off a of battery power to heat your scent up and help disperse it better. I mean, the science of it to me makes sense. I've just never, any kind of scent in general, I just think it's uh, usually too dissimilar to what the individual deer in that location might be putting out. And then the other thing with it is it's so easy for other hunters to get that same exact thing that I think there's probably the ability for deer to 
be able to differentiate between what's real and what's store-bought. I mean, and there could very well be 20 different deer that come out of that bottle, basically. You know, that could have been collected from multiple deer, even though they put, you know, collected from one deer on there. Yeah, from what I understand, there's some companies that do it that way. There's other companies that, like I think Code Blue might be one of the ones where it goes one deer to one bottle, I think is their slogan or something like that. And then I suppose the most effective would be if you have like a, a local game farm or something where it's fresh, it's been collected recently. Uh, but even then, that's usually a little bit more work than I'll want to put into it. Yeah, absolutely. So on activated carbon, um, you know, kind of what's your thoughts on how well it works in your dealings with it, if you have any of it? Well, I've never actually used it in the woods. Um, so there's my disclaimer. But I believe 100% in the science of activated carbon. I think it's very effective. There's enough uh, professional applications of it to say that, yeah, for sure works. But uh, to be able to also use it in the woods and use it in that application, there's a lot of other variables that get brought in, and it's probably not as cut and dry. One of the examples that a lot of times people bring up will be you know, if you have somebody that farts in a scent lock suit, you'll be able to smell it. <laughs> yeah. And it might not be as strong, but it's like, yeah, that suit's not going to be able to contain 100% of your scent. But it's for sure, if you go in with a um, a regenerated suit, you know, you don't do like the full um, heat cycle, but maybe you do like a dryer cycle to help, help squeeze out some of the scent. Uh, if you go into the woods and that scent has the ability to absorb some of your scent, it's going to help, I think. But again expensive. I'd rather pick my clothes based on performance, you know, how well it breathes, what the insulation type is, etc. Yeah, my my biggest issue with it is I think again, there's it's kind of hard to do the research on this to figure out, but most all of your scent is probably going to come from your face. So, I think you could probably do more with just a, a scent lock face mask with two little eye holes cut in it than a complete suit from head to toe basically you know obviously your body's going to put off a little bit but just breathing um facial hair i mean it's got all your scent from numerous days put in there um you know hats if you're not wearing a complete scent lock hat or something like that your scent is just it it radiates from your head basically yeah i agree with that wholeheartedly i know john eberhardt uh you know a good friend of mine obviously he's a huge scent lock guy pushes it all the time uh every time i see him he makes fun of me because i got a beard and he's, <laughs> he he's like oh you know deer smell you from that i'm like they i'm sure they do um you know but to me you know he's if you're doing it right he's probably the best guy out there to try to mimic to do it right because he goes full head to toe everything in it um and a lot of guys you know they go full scent lock but they may not deal with like their tree stand seat or their tree stand you know, so if they get winded, they may blame it on their scent lock when it was really their tree stand or their backpack, their release, their bow. Yeah. There's just so many variables out there that you have to take care of that's really difficult for most hunters to. Or maybe they're wearing the suit, but they're not wearing the face mask and they had McDonald's on the way out to the stand. Yeah, they're wearing their favorite bow company hat that they've had for three years that just reeks. Mm-hmm. I'm guilty for that. I do that all the time. <laughs> I, have, I have hats that I like to wear and too bad if deer smell me for my hat they didn't deserve to kill that deer there used to be a product called gumaflash have you ever tried that i've heard i remember it um i used to work at a sporting goods store we sold it at the time uh, i never have tried it 
I never tried it either, but there's a, I can't remember the company, but they make like a, a scent that you'll spray in your mouth. It's a little squirt bottle that has, I think it's dead down wind that makes it and it's got a vanilla scent to it. So it's kind of the same idea, I think, as the, uh, the cover scent. Yeah. There's a, I seen a video on Instagram the other day of a guy and I don't know if it was real or fake, but he took, um, dough and estrus and rinsed his mouth out with it. And I'm just like, uh, that's, yeah. I don't know what kind of knucklehead did that, but probably somebody faked it to try and get views or did it look pretty real? Uh, I don't know. I mean, you could have faked it pretty easy because you could just imagine how bad that would have really been. Oh, I know. That just sounds, it makes me want to hurl just imagining it. <laughs> Some guys too yeah. will start taking chlorophyll pills like before the season starts. I actually have a buddy that does that basically all year um, and he swears by it. I I'd have never had any kind of experience with it, so I can't say whether it works or not. Well, if I shot a big buck, too, after the year that I started implementing, I'd probably swear by it, too. I think that's that's probably the point that uh, I think you brought up before, that a lot of times it's a confidence thing, scent control, just because we can't prove. And so we have to try and try and justify the best we can. Yeah, and that's why I think there's there's so many different options and everybody has these extremely heated debates about scent control because really it it all works to a degree. It's a matter of what you think works best. Um, whether you're, you know, like Dan Infault, the way he talks, it's like that man can see the wind blowing through, like you can see cars driving down the road. Um, I just find it hard to believe that you can read the wind that well all the time because there's so many variables you know and john eberhardt obviously believes wholeheartedly in scent lock and doesn't bother with the wind it's all his activated carbon that he believes in you know they both strongly believe it in something and it made him more confident hunters and look at him now did you listen to the podcast between those two talking I about scent control it's <laughs> pretty I interesting did. You'd hear one guy say something and the other guy would say something completely opposite, but yet they're both yeah. extremely successful. I thought that was very interesting. It just goes to show that it, it, to me, it's more confidence than what the wind or what the scent blocker or scent lock's actually doing for you. Well, here's an interesting ethical question. If there was something that could completely, and we could prove that it would eliminate all of your scent, would you feel comfortable using it? You know, it'd be like akin to using like a, a visibility cloak in the woods. Yeah. I have, I mean, again, I come, this is for the biological background. The herd obviously needs managed. They put that out there. If I fill my quota using a, an invisibility cloak, then I fill my quota using that. It's not, I mean, yeah, it's a little unfair, no doubt, but I'm out there not necessarily for the fairness of it. I'm out there to be out there and enjoy being out there um, and, you know, taking animals at the same time. Right, and you're also the guy who's hunting with a, a handmade Osage orange self bow too, so I think that definitely stacks the odds against you. Yeah, a little <laughs> bit. It's been a few years, though, with that one, so i got to get back on that. Speaking of, have you been using your compound this year? So yeah, I in, yeah, I injured my shoulder, uh, I guess it's two, three, two or three years ago now, um, and I'm just got back to where I could shoot a 42 pound recurve. So I, I've still got a little bit building left to go in my shoulders to get back up where I can shoot the 52 pounds off my self bows. Hmm. So what's your, what's your big takeaway for scent control? What would you recommend to the listeners out there, um, for them? 
Well, I think ultimately it just comes down to confidence, like you say. Um, and if you want to truly stack all the odds in your favor, then it probably doesn't hurt you to go out and try some of these different things. Try a scent lock suit, try an Ozonics. Um, I mean, obviously it comes down to how much money you're going to want to spend because you can do it without doing any kind of scent control and you can be successful. It's just, you know, each one of these things is going to be incrementally increasing your odds. So it's kind of how much you want to put into it, how much of an inconvenience do you want to add, how much do you want to just be out there to enjoy being out in the woods? Because following a strict uh, scent protocol, it's probably not going to be as fun or enjoyable. I mean, to me, yeah, I mean, ultimately depends on what's going to make you the most confident. If you can afford it, do a ball, scent control, uh, scent blocker, ozone, use it all. And it's obviously all of it's the more the better. It's obviously going to help. Mm-hmm. You know, but most of us can't afford to do all of that. So we're going to pick one thing or another, whether it's, you know, hunt the wind is obviously the easiest. Anybody can do it. Doesn't matter what you wear, you can hunt the wind. And then obviously it goes up from there using scent sprays or cover scents to, you know, ozone is typically now about the cheapest with scent crusher and some of these other things that have, you know, and whether you want to just do that, you know, in a closet or in a duffel bag compared to in the field with ozonics all the way up to, you know, a full scent blocker suit or scent lock suit. Yeah. And I would say the other thing I would add is that if you do get winded, don't immediately dismiss your, your, whatever you've been doing for scent control, because there are some things you just cannot control. And you don't even know if the deer's blowing at you. It could be blowing at a coyote scent that it smells. It could be blowing at a lot of things. Um, I think a lot of people associate that that deer smelled you because you're in the woods to me it would be interesting and i've always wanted to see somebody do this study to set up a bunch of sound recording devices in the woods and just see how many times in a typical day deer snort at something or blow at something Um, i think it occurs in the woods a lot more than most people believe yeah it's definitely possible i mean today when i was out in the woods i saw a bigger body deer moving through some brush and he definitely acts, acted spooked, but I he wasn't downwind to me. I hadn't moved, so I know he didn't see me move. He hadn't heard me because I didn't do anything. He was just spooked by something else in the woods. And then, you know, last week when I was scouting, I saw the same type of deal where I saw a doe just pop out and bolt in front of me, and I immediately assumed I had jumped her. And then I just did the deer walk for another 20 yards in case she was still hanging around and a coyote just popped out right behind her. So I was like, obviously it wasn't me that jumped the deer. It was the coyote. And if I wouldn't have seen that, I would have assumed that I had jumped the deer. Yeah. You would have thought she associated you with danger, but instead it was that coyote that you may or may not have ever seen. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a lot of things like that where we kind of, we assume that we're always the problem in the woods when a lot of times we're not. I mean, I've heard deer snort a long ways away on, on private property where I know there's nobody else but me out there and that it was no way that the deer smelled me, um, you know, based off where that deer was in the wind direction. It could have been, you know, the wind could have been doing some crazy things, um, but as far off as that deer was, you know, it's pretty safe to assume that deer was obviously blowing at something else that it thought was danger. Mm -hmm. I think probably one of the most dangerous mindsets to have regarding scent control is to try and make it black and white. It's a pretty common human thing to do to try and make something either one option or the other, black or white, good or bad. And so often in life, things aren't just black and white. You got some kind of gray zone and scent is definitely that type of thing. 
where I think the most common argument against scent control that I hear is that if it doesn't work 100% of the time, it's not worth doing any time. And I just, I don't agree with that at all. Oh, absolutely not. I mean, it's, I think the reason why it's so debated is because we can't see it. We have no idea what's going on. We're making assumptions on 99% of it. Mm -hmm. Um, So because we can't see it, we can't blame it on something. So we're going to blame it on, well, it was the ozone that I used instead of my scent blocker suit. Um, you know, we're trying to find something to blame it on, trying to make it that black or white when it's just gray. You may have no idea what it was. Was it your boots? Was it your hat? Was it because you coughed? Was it the coyote you didn't see? Exactly. There's so many things out there that, and that's why I think that just the confidence, whatever makes you a more confident hunter, run with it. Um, because that gives you that confidence to kind of get out of that gray area. So for me, I think rubber boots are a must because I think any other boot is kind of more of a scent wick. And I think boots are one thing that people forget a lot about. Um, you know, I used to always try when I hunted on private property, a lot of times I walked through a cow pasture. I would purposely try and walk through cow crap in the field before I got into the woods. Cause those deer would smell cows all day, every day. Um, and simple things like that to me, you're walking in, uh, water typically helps a little bit, but it goes back to that, you know, moisture helps hold scent. So if your boots like yours, may be a scent wick, it may help hold your scent closer to the ground. Yeah. I used to always wear rubber boots and I made the switch to non-rubber boots purely for the performance where I can go on like a a hill country hunt and I'm walking on gradients for most of the trip. Rubber boots are just so uncomfortable to walk in if you don't have a good pair of rubber boots. Whereas if you got lace up hiking boots, you can just get to where you're going so much more efficiently. Same thing if you're walking through a marsh. Yeah. Rubber boots will keep you dry and they're probably the best thing for scent control. But whenever I'd walk through water muck with rubber boots, every footstep you take in that muck, you got, you know, a little quarter inch, half inch of, of gap that you get every time you lift your foot out of the muck. And then you got to flex your calf again to pull the boot back on tight. And then you just repeat that over and over again. I think by the time you get where you're going, you end up burning 25% more energy. Uh, if you don't have a, a perfectly fitting rubber boot that fits nice and tight on your ankles, it's going to cost you a lot of money. And so that's kind of why I went for the non-rubber boot versions, just because I can, they're just so much more comfortable and I get better performance out of them feel like they're a lot more efficient. And for me, that trumps the potential scent benefits of rubber. See, I, I used, I'm like you. I used to hate rubber boots. Um, oh, and the neoprene. Neoprene is pretty bad for holding scent. So neoprene top boots are no bueno in my mind. Uh, but back to the rubber boots. The um, uh, Irish Setter Rupmaster 2s, they're like a – they have like an exoskeleton or exoflex. So as you – like put your foot in, they kind of stretch out a little bit and they tighten back down around your foot. Mm-hmm. I, for work, I wore those basically every day for work when I was doing um, feral pig work and they wore like tennis shoes to me. They were fantastic and I absolutely love them. It, hmm. Still have a couple pair of them. They still probably don't breathe very well. No, they don't, they don't, no, they don't breathe very well. Obviously most rubber boots don't, um, don't breathe very well. Or at all. <laughs> yeah. Uninsulated and then insulated gradients of them, um, depending on the time of the year. Right. So like when I'm hunting in really cold weather, 
rubber boots are dangerous for me because my feet sweat on the way to wherever I'm going. And so you get that moisture then on the inside of your boot and it has no place to go. And that ends up making your feet a little bit colder. Whereas like the boots that I have now, those uh, Cabela's lockdown boots I was telling you about, the upper for those boots, like it's just a, a you know, mid-top hiking boot essentially with like a, a waterproof membrane that you can slide up and cinch down around the top of your calf. That breathes. So if I walk a mile and a half and I'm going through some rough country, my feet don't get nearly as sweaty as they would have if I were using rubber boots. See, and for the most part, I'm, with the exception of wearing Crocs, um, I can wear a rubber boot, a 1,200-gram insulated rubber boot in 95-degree weather, and my feet won't sweat. Just something about it, I don't sweat in boots for the most part. Hmm. I think I'm the opposite. I think my feet start to sweat when I'm <laughs> sitting watching a football game. <laughs> it's because you're getting too too into your fantasy football league. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, I mean, for me, it's just, again, whatever my final thoughts, I guess, is whatever would, whatever makes you the most confident, just go with it and, and run with it because it's going to make you a better hunter in the end. Yeah, I agree 100%. We might not agree on everything scent control related, but we can agree on that one thing and what you what makes you confident is not necessarily what's going to make me confident and that's totally fine yeah and i think you know kind of because we both lean a little bit more towards the ozonics um, or ozone for that matter not necessarily ozonics the brand but the ozone uh, we're going to have a guest on that's going to talk a little bit more about the ozone and kind of the, the science behind the ozone so that's going to be interesting um, just because we're both kind of into the ozone more than anything yeah, so that's that's all we've got for today, guys. Um, you know, be sure to like the Sportsman's Nation Network podcast on Facebook, Instagram, uh, like the DIY Sportsman as well. 